started in prayer. Father, thanks so much for this day, for your opportunity to be here to study your word, open minds and hearts, help us to understand it. And thank you that not only have you given us your word, but you've preserved it through the centuries so that we could have a copy in front of us today. Thank you for that in Christ's name. Amen. You're going to say something, Sammy, about the, our socials director. <laughs> um, just in case, there's anybody here today who doesn't know that over the last two Sundays, We've been talking about having a social Christmas potluck social <coughs> together at Al and Donna's house, and the decision by the majority choice is Friday night, December the 19th, and uh, say around 6.30 or 7 is a good arrival time, and um, just bring a dish, whatever you you know, are good at making, bring it. And um, I'm this morning announcing that if there's anybody in the room, and maybe not in the room right now, but I'll announce this again next Sunday, who's good at picking up fun things to do, like, I don't know, games or whatever, whatever. Uh, I'm leaving that in the capable hands of such gifted persons that may exist within the room or in the class. And so just know that you're free to come up with stuff to do. What are you not capable of coming up with? Well, hey, I guess you, you can, can enjoy it. With <laughs> 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 All right, thank you. Yeah, and uh, don't forget to bring your kids or your um, oh, spouse, family. your family. That'd be fine. Right. So um, we got enough room. Huh? I'll get it. I'll get it. You know what I should? I should probably give you that. Um, the address, you, you can Google it on a map. 13957 Hidden Lane. 13957 Hidden Lane. It's off Banks Road. If you know where Banks Road is out here, it's just off of there. Um, Grafton. Yeah, it's off 301. Take 301 down to Banks. Go, go one mile down Banks, is Hidden Lane, head south, and ours is the third house. It's easy to find. Your zip, as I Google it, 44044. Okay. So. And Hidden Lane is very hidden. It only goes to the right. Yeah. You have to go slow. If you get lost, you don't deserve to drive because it's, <laughs> it's really easy to get there, all right? <laughs> it's really easy to get there, so. Oh, okay. So you shouldn't have any problem getting there, but we'll have we'll look forward to that. Anyways, today what we're going to do is we're going to start looking at um, some. Yeah, there's only one way to go on banks. If you go down 301, if you go right on banks, you're going to be in somebody's front yard because there's no right and turn. Um, today we're going to talk about something I think that you'll find very interesting. Um, something you probably never thought about any before, but the whole concept of the languages and the records that we have of our Bible. And I think you'll find this fascinating as we go down through it. We're going to talk here about languages and manuscripts. Languages and manuscripts. Why is language important to this? Um, God wanted to record divine truth. And, of course, the best way to record that is in a written form. So what God did is he 
wrote his truth down. So what we're going to look at here is the importance of written languages. Why did God use a written language? What materials were used? This is sort of interesting to see how it was written down. Um, the languages of the Bible. And then we're going to introduce you just really quickly to manuscripts. And you, I actually have some pictures of some biblical manuscripts that we get our Bible from. So you'll find that interesting, I think. What's the importance of written languages? Why is written language important? Well, number one, it provides for a precise and accurate method to transmit God's truth through the ages. What if God just left everything to an oral tradition? What could have happened? It changes. Now, let's understand that back then, oral tradition was a little bit more solid than it is today. I mean, back then in a pre-writing um, culture, um, the memorization of things was a very important way to pass on truth. And uh, it, was it was passed on pretty accurately. There wasn't any, you know, gross distortions that you see, you know, today when we're talking about things. I mean, today, you know, if a story is more than a year old, it's all out of whack. Back then, it didn't work that way. Uh, oral tradition was pretty, a pretty good way to transmit truth, but it was not a permanent way to transmit truth because things change over time. Even little changes over a thousand years can make a big difference. So God wanted to write down his truth. He wanted to put it in a permanent format that was able to then be passed on. What it does also is it allows thoughts and ideas to be frozen at the moment of the writing of the text. There's something about a written text that freezes thought. In fact, some people say you don't know what you're, you don't know anything until you can write it down. Um, that's why they have you do papers in college and things like that. For you to really understand something, you need to be able to write it down. Because when you write it down, then you really think through what it is that you're writing. What God wanted to do is he wanted this, his thoughts, his words, his ideas frozen at the moment of time so then they could actively be transmitted on through the centuries to us. And allows the content of Revelation to be analyzed at a later point long after the authors of the scripture have disappeared. Long after Daniel is dead and gone, we still have the book of Daniel. Long after Isaiah is dead and gone, we still have Isaiah. And we can analyze what Isaiah said. Now, we're not going to get into this right now. But later on, we're going to talk about how to interpret Scripture. And one of the ways, one of the keys of interpreting Scripture is what we call authorial intent. That's a fancy word. It just means, what did Daniel mean when he wrote it down? We live in a world where... What the author means is irrelevant. What you think he means is more relevant. That's called postmodernism. Interpretation is with me, not with the author. With scripture, the interpretation is with the author. What did Daniel mean when Daniel wrote it down? What did Paul mean when he wrote down that text? Better yet, what did the Holy Spirit mean? What did they mean? And that's what you want to get to. But by having a written language, a written text, a written word of God... We can then go back, and we're doing it now, thousands of years after the fact, and we're able to read and analyze and understand what God said at the moment he said it. And that's what's really important about written language. Also, there's a sense in which it is permanent. There's a permanence to written language. Um, cultures come and go, languages come and go, but when you write something down in the Word of God, you have it. You write something down in permanent form, you have it. It also eliminates what we call here a single point of failure. All right? If Isaiah died before he was able to pass his truth on, what would have happened? He lost it. It would have been gone. 
And by having multiple copies of the truth, right, it eliminates a single point of failure. If I lose the Isaiah scroll, the original, I still have a copy of it somewhere. Or a copy of a copy. Alright? In computer jargon, we call that backup. Alright? We have copies. And depending on the medium, the text can be reserved for hundreds or thousands of years. We've got manuscripts that are 2,000 years old. Alright? So it's pretty permanent form. If you chisel it in a rock, it can last a lot longer. Um, we don't have, by the way, uh, Isaiah did not chisel Isaiah into a rock. <laughs> he wrote it on parchment probably. But anyways, what it does, it, it preserves it for a long period of time. And we have some of these very old manuscripts. Yeah. Oops, I missed one. Yeah. Uh, on the second point, the single point of failure, what if... Isaiah or whoever uh, that wrote all the 66 anyway had died before it was finished but somebody discovered it and made it permanent mm -hmm. I, mean, I guess I, I got stuck at the point when you asked what if Isaiah had died what would have happened and we said it would have been lost or that was the general answer. Well, I guess the bigger point here is, is what would have happened if the only scroll that he wrote was lost. That's probably a better way to think about it. Okay. I mean, we got God superintended the transmission of truth, right? So he's not going to let that happen. True. But one of the things, you know, well, here, here's a good example. Jeremiah, remember, if you read the book of Jeremiah towards the end there, Jeremiah takes his book to the king. And I always get the guy wrong. Jehoiakim, I think, C-H-I-N is the one. Yeah. And he takes it to him, and he didn't like it, so he takes a pen knife, cuts it up, and burns it in the fire there. And God says, don't worry about it. I'll have you go back, and I'll give you another one. And we're going to add some chapters about Jehoiakim. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, so God preserves his truth. It's not going to... You don't need to worry saying, man, you know, maybe, we should have, maybe there should be 67 books. Maybe we lost one. You don't need to worry about that. God has preserved his text. But when you step back and look at it from a larger perspective, by having written languages and written texts and copies of those texts, it aids in the permanence of that because you don't have one text that can be lost. And God has superintended that whole process, understand? All right. So don't worry about missing a text somewhere. The other thing written language does is it gives you objectivity. In other words, if I pass a story on, that story is subject to my own interpretation. It's subject to the way you interpret it. But if I write something down in a permanent form, it's no longer subjective. It is more objective. You look at it. You can read it. You can analyze it. You can see what it says. All right? And that's what we have with the text. God has given us a written permanent text that then thousands of years later we can go and read and look at. It's objective. It is not subject to the oral traditions through the centuries. Um, it removes private interpretations from creeping into the text. The idea there is, you know, when I, you, you tell me a story, I take that story and I relay it to someone else. What am I going to do as I relay that story to someone else? I'm going to add my spin. I'm going to edit it. I'm going to forget a fact. I'm going to forget some nuance. And then if that person passes on to something else, someone else, it gets a little worse. But by writing it down, by writing the story down, that can't happen. It, it, it retains its objectivity. And it retains, or it prevents interpretations from creeping in. 
they're there. And uh, what this does is it makes sure that the scripture we have, the words revealed, that God has revealed, are in their pure form many thousands of years later. We have a pure text. And we'll talk about what that means. Also, dissemination. By writing it down, what are you able to do? Distribute it. All right. If it was an oral tradition and Isaiah could only tell two people and they told two others, it would take a long time for that to make it out. But if you write it down and can pass the scroll around, it can reach a much wider audience. All right. And so that's what we have here. It, it allows God's truth to be readily available to many, many people. What are some of the writing materials? This will be interesting for you. What are some of the writing... Um, you know, we go back, they didn't have a, you know, a, an office max or staples back in the old days where you'd go down and get your paper. They didn't have photocopiers and they didn't have, you know, all of the nice cool things that we have today. How, how did they write this stuff down? How, did, how was it preserved? Well, there's several um, medium on which God preserved his word. One of them is a, called a papyrus. And uh, it was used in Egypt from about 2100 B.C., so this goes back a long way. So they, papyrus has been around a long time, all right? And it comes from the papyrus plant, and I have a picture of that coming up here. But um, a lot of our older manuscripts, in fact, some of the oldest manuscripts that we have are on papyrus. And I have some pictures of some manuscripts coming up here, but they're very old, and it's just a reed plant. And probably papyrus is what John used to write the book of Revelation and Second John. Um, so it was a very common um, medium in those days. And the other thing here, it was a little cheaper than the next thing here, which is parchment or vellum. That's made from skins of animals. All right, you, may, you, you take an animal skin and you tan it and you um, treat it in a certain way and you create a parchment, all right, or, a, or vellum if it's, um, from a, I think, from a calf. And that's a surface that you can then write on. That's more expensive because it takes animals to make that. All right, so it's a more expensive medium to write things on. And what we have, interestingly, is we have some manuscripts which are called rescriptus. That's a fancy word which means rewriting. And so what they do is they take a piece of parchment and they erase it and write over it. Because, um, you know, sometimes the, the medium was just so expensive in those days that you had an old thing that you didn't want, you just erase it and write something new on it. So we have some manuscripts of the Bible that are actually rescriptuses. They've been written over with something else and we're able to determine the original um, text that was on there. Um, but it's mainly used for skins, mainly for the skins of animals. Probably most of the Old Testament is just the old scrolls, the scrolls that Christ read from, was, was most likely made from parchment, not from papyrus, from parchment. All right. Um, when you look at papyrus, its use goes back really to extreme antiquity. I mean, way, way back. Again, 2100 B.C. And uh, we have, a, have an account sheet from the reign of an Egyptian king dated about 2600 B.C. That shows how old it is. All right. Now you're saying, well, how could that papyrus have lasted so long? Any takers on that? Got it. Where, where is Egypt? Dry, hot, arid. So it's very well suited for the preservation of things like papyrus. Now, if you take the papyrus and you go up to the you know, Asia Minor or something like that, we have a wet, mild climate. They don't last nearly as long. 
All right. But with a hot, dry desert climate, papyrus is well preserved in such a such a such conditions. Um, the size was not uniform, and the reason is, you know, they didn't have eight and a half by eleven or eleven by fourteen or whatever. Um, they didn't have that. They just whatever the reeds were, however the reeds were big, the reeds were. That's how big the parchment was or the papyrus was. And they created several sheets of it. And what you could do is you could glue some of the sheets together to create a scroll. And we have some of those scrolls where you have several sheets glued end to end. end. And uh, some rolls, you know, they have 20 to 45 feet long. You remember the old scrolls where you roll it and, and work, away, work your way along. That was mostly papyrus or in some cases parchments. But uh, you could have some very long rolls of this stuff. This is what a papyrus plant looks like here. It's um, just these reeds. It's almost like a bamboo. And what they would do is they take them and, and um, slice them into really thin strips and lay them cross-hatched on one another and dry them and press them and uh, pops a piece of papyrus that you could write on. Papyrus, how was it made? Well, what you did is you took the papyrus plant, you separated it into really thin strips. Um, and the strips that were more towards the center were a little higher quality. So you had different quality of papyrus sheets, actually. Um, you had the inner layer and the outer layers. Sometimes they would use the outer layers to create like the early form of wrapping paper. You know, where you'd wrap things in. They were not used to write on, but you could wrap things in. But the inner, inner um, pieces of the plant were used to create this papyrus paper. Um, and what you did is you laid them vertically. You take a table and lay, lay the strips out vertically. Then you lay another layer horizontally on it, press them down, and when you, they dry, they would sort of stick together and dry, and that way you would have a piece of papyrus where you had these. Think of taking a little, I don't know, a little weed or reed and just splitting into really thin, thin little strips and just stacking them on one another, and out pops your sheet of papyrus. So it takes a while to make them. You had different grades of papyrus in those days. Um, your number one grade they was about 13 inches wide, about this about this wide, and you know several feet long. Um, you know this is this will be on the test, so you need to remember these from. Yeah. But uh, I just don't don't worry. This is just the idea here is there's different kinds of papyrus. There's different grades of papyrus that were used um, and produced. Um, well, what uh, what they did later on is um, instead of having so many different grades. They would take the high-grade papyrus and they would put it on the topmost layer, which you would write on, and the lower grade or the outer layers they put on the back to back it. So you had a high-gloss front side and a not-so-good back side. Um, while for higher-quality sheets, um, it says here, glues were made from fine flour, unleavened bread, and you'd pound the, the paper, you know, pound it. It's amazing, you know, what we take for granted with paper. You know, you go down to Staples, you get a ream of paper for a couple bucks, and you think nothing of it. And back then, you know, it'd take you a long time to make something like that because you had to make it by hand. All right, and that's why, for example, when you look back in the, you know, in the early centuries, most people didn't own Bibles and books and things like that because of the expense. I mean, you know, think of think of the expense of producing a papyrus scroll. You know, take somebody a month to produce the paper or the papyrus to write on. So only rich and wealthy people had these. Um, most of the ancient works were written on papyrus rolls. All right. 
And so you had the horizontal strips running, and that was used as the inside to write on. Um, later centuries, we have a, something called a codex. Codex is a book. And instead of putting the sheets side by side and gluing them together, they would put a sheet, and then they'd put a sheet on top of it. sort of like a little book. And they would wind it a little bit, and we'd have a codex. It's called a codex. And that just think of that as just several sheets of papyrus stacked on one another with a, probably a binding, and it would be like your early book, idea of a book. Now, due to the extremely arid climate, Egypt it was a perfect place to preserve these, right? So where would you expect to find some of the oldest manuscripts of the Bible? In a dry, arid climate. Very arid, very dry. Um, and what we have is we've got many documents, fragments found over the years that go back almost right up to, you know, right to the Old Testament times. And uh, some of the oldest manuscripts of the New Testament, some of the oldest ones we have are papyri manuscripts. All right? Those are the oldest. And the reason being because they were preserved in a hot, arid climate for so long. All right? Here's an example of a papyrus fragment here. All right? And you say, you know, when we talk about New Testament manuscripts and things like that, sometimes we have these fragments. All right? And... The verso is the front, the recto is the back, okay. So the verso and recto, and uh, this is a papyrus fragment here. I don't know what it is from, but this is Greek lettering here, the Greek letters. And uh, if worked that, I could probably figure out what passage of the Bible is from, but that's what a papyrus fragment would look like. And we have literally thousands of these, thousands of them. And think of it putting together a giant jigsaw puzzle. Because after a while, what would you expect the papyrus to become? Pretty brittle, right? So it crunches really easily. And if you have a bunch of these fragments, you got to have a, you have to put them all back together. If you ever went and seen the Dead Sea Scrolls, sometimes you have to put those back together because of the age. They had to, it's like a big giant jigsaw puzzle. It can be done. Yeah. Again, we don't have originals. And, and why not? Because they deteriorate. Well, they deteriorate over use. The other thing is, we probably put them in a shrine and worship them. You know, what would happen if you had the Isaiah scroll? I mean, the original scroll hot off the pen of Isaiah. Yeah, you probably have some church built for the shrine of the Isaiah scroll. I mean, humans are very good at that kind of stuff. We don't have the originals. We have copies of the copies, all right? And we're going to talk about the copying process, so don't worry that somehow that got messed up. It's, it's really well copied. Um, the writing, is it not from, uh, from uh, right to left instead of left to right? Greek is our way. Greek. Hebrew is the other way. Okay. Greek is our way. So you're reading, you read it along this way. But one of the things you can see here, for example, right here, this line right here, you don't see any spaces between letters. They didn't, write, they didn't have spaces between words like we do. We have spaces between words. Why? Because paper's cheap. You know, back then paper was expensive. You didn't waste, you didn't waste your paper by putting spaces between words. But most you could, people could read that. All right, people could understand it. All right, and we're going to have some examples of what that looks like here in a minute. Um, here's another one here. This, this is an old, old fragment. Again, I don't know what exactly these, these are. 
Um, but here you can see the Greek lettering here. We have a lot of these fragments. And we have complete, complete works too. So don't think everything is all a bunch of jumbled pieces. It's not. We have complete works as well. Yeah. Yeah, you can see that a little bit there. Then here's another one. This is a little tougher to read, um, you know, because you've got a lot of broken pieces in between. But again, you can, this is not a, you can't see it very well here. But if I had in front of you, you can see the writing on it. Okay. What about parchment? Well, parchment is made from the skin of animals. And uh, vellum is a parchment that's made from the skin of calves. And uh, what you did is you soak these skins in lime water, scrape, stretched, Scrape off the flesh, let them, left it, let them dry it. And then you could even dye them different colors to give different colors of vellum or parchment. And again, you can take these leaves of parchment and put them together to make a codex, an old book. Or you can stitch them together and make a long scroll. When Christ went to Nazareth and I was given a scroll to read, he probably had a vellum scroll, a parchment scroll that he unrolled. And it said he unrolled it to... Isaiah 65, we know is Isaiah 65. He unrolled it to there and began to read from the scroll. All right? But most likely what Christ used was a parchment scroll. And where you found those are in synagogues. Each synagogue would have a scroll that they would keep. It would be a Torah that they would venerate and protect and keep. Again, not everybody and their brother had, had a scroll. You didn't take your scrolls to Sunday school in those days. You didn't have them. All right? The, the church had a scroll. You didn't have it. The idea of you having your own Bible is a relatively new concept. I mean, back in 15th century England, most people didn't have a Bible. You had it down at the parish church. If you wanted to read the Bible, you would go down there and have somebody read it to you. And that's why the Catholic Church still has that holdover where you're supposed to call upon the priest mm-hmm. or the, you know, to get your understanding of Scripture. Yeah, because they thought it was too dangerous for you to read it on your own. Um, But that's parchment. And um, here's a couple of old parchments that you can see. Um, This here looks like this here looks like Greek. And um, that's Greek definitely over there. Um, But these are some old parchments, some old manuscripts. And, um, by the way, I have some actual manuscripts coming up. I don't know if it's in this set or another one, but some actual manuscripts of the New Testament that we have that you can see. When you look at the languages of the Bible, what languages were used in the the Scripture? Um, You have two major languages that were used, Hebrew and Greek. All right? And um, there's reasons for the... For the differences other than the fact that Hebrew was an older one. But um, the Old Testament is almost entirely written in Hebrew. And Hebrew is a very, very it's, a, it's what you would call a pictorial language. What do you mean by pictorial? What do we mean by that? You start off uh, learning symbols by making a picture of whatever it is we're trying to describe. Mm-hmm. So pictorial language. You know, um, that'd be more like um, 
like Egyptian um, hieroglyphics. You know, the idea of pictorial language is the words and the structure tend to be a very good medium for transmission of what kind of genre? Do you think poetry or stories? Stories. All right, very vivid stories. In fact, you know, if you go back to the Old Testament and you read where God got mad, we don't. They don't have an idea like God was angry. They said God's nose got red. All right. Well, what do we mean by that? Well, when somebody gets really mad, what happens to their nose? It's red. All right. So it's a very pictorial language. It's, it's it's geared very very well and very much suited for the transmission of stories of historical narrative. Yes. Yeah, it's a very, how do I put it, it's not, it's not a precise language in a sense of the, the, the deep precision of Greek, where you have multiple, multiple verb forms and things like that, where you can get very precise ideas. Rather, it's a very common pictorial story language, story kind of language, because what kind of culture were the Hebrews, by and large? They were storytellers, they were nomads, shepherds, things like that. They weren't, you know, trying to write some deep theological truth or deep scientific information or anything. They were telling stories, so it's a very pictorial type of language. And it's perfect for the transmission of history and stories. And that's basically what the Old Testament is all about, right? Now, that doesn't mean there's no precision to it at all. I'm not, don't get there. But it's just it's a very pictorial, very very good language for the transmission of stories. And uh, it consists of a 22-character alphabet. It is an alphabetized language. All right. And it's interesting here, they don't have any vowels in it. There's no vowels. We have vowels, A-E-I-O-U and sometimes Y, right? And sometimes W. Um, but in those days, they did not have vowels. They, they omitted the vowels. They just had the consonants. So it's what we call a consonantal Language. It only had consonants in it. It doesn't have lowercase or uppercase letter. There's only one case, one letter for each one. That's where uh, YHWH, the tetragrammaton, yeah. which we translate as Yahweh. Yahweh or Jehovah could be either one. There you go. Depending on what vowels, you know, what pointings you put in or what, how you pronounce it. And that's one of the difficulties with Hebrew is we don't know how it was originally pronounced because we don't have the vowels. We have the consonants, but not the vowels. So if I see B and D, what's B and D? Well, it could be bed, bide, bode, bud, bod. You know, what is it? All right. We, I don't know how it's, we don't know how it's pronounced, but we do know the language. All right. Um, vowel intonations were added later on. These were little vowel pointings. What they would do, if you read, like, if you get a Hebrew text like the Masoretic text or one of the Hebrew Bibles, it'll have the consonants. It'll have little, like little dots, like three little dots or a little dot here, or a little squiggle here underneath the vowels or underneath the consonants, and that was how they would pronounce it. Okay. So the Masoretes added this later on. Yeah. Well, they did, but they just knew what it was when they read the letter. But when they wrote it down, all they did was put the consonants down. Don't ask me why they did that. They just put down the consonants. 
It's like, it's like if I put down a B and a D and everybody in here knows that's spelled bod. I don't need to put the O in there because everybody knows that. It could be expedience, it could be, and again, writing materials were very, very, very expensive, so the more you can compress it, the better off you are. Um, vowels aid in the pronunciation of the, con of the consonants, alright, bide, bid, bitey, you know. It's, it's, and because they understood the language, and by the way, they didn't have like the confusion we have with all these thousands of words and all that. They were, it was a very simple language. So that everybody knew that you pronounced a B and a D this way. Everybody just knew that. Problem is, we don't know that. <laughs> they knew it when they wrote it down. But we do know what the word was. Alright, so we do know the original meaning of the word. Um, you could compare it to today's texting. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good way to do it. Texting. Mm -hmm. Those of you who text, you know, you, you're getting an idea of, of a consonantal language. Isn't it amazing? We go from consonant all the way to a real nice thing. Now we're going back to the old, con you know, getting rid of the letters. Um, it was written with little or no spacing. Why? Because it was very, very expensive to write this stuff down. The stuff was very expensive to write on. And it was written, this is interesting it was written from left to right top to bottom so it was backwards from the way we would read things okay hmm. the Masoretes Masoretes that's a good question the Masoretes were a group of Jewish scholars dating from the 7th to 9th centuries AD that were the keepers of the Hebrew text they copied and wrote this text and copied it um, and in order to aid in the pronunciation of some of the words, they guessed at what the original um, sound was for the words. And that's why they put the vowel pointings in. They called vowel pointings um, that they would put in there to help in the, the um, pronunciation of it. Um, here's what the Hebrew alphabet looks like. Okay, here you go at the, again, how do you read it? Yeah. So you start over here with Aleph. That's A. Bait, Gimel, Dalit, He, Vav, Zan. And uh, that's the that's underneath it here is the what we would call our our um, how we would pronounce it. Okay. Um, the bait is a B or a V sound depending on how how it's used. It sounds like a B or a V. And um, the Kaf over there, the K. Could be a K or a KH sound. Um, shin could be S, H, or S. And a lot of the differences were if you had a little dot in the middle of the letter or not, it would make it a B or a V sound. Alright? So, um, now as you look at that, let's just, we're, we're, we'll skip ahead just a little bit, but I'll give you an idea of what's going on. Look at the difference between um, this letter and that letter. What's the difference between a D and an R? Yeah. The difference between the D and the R is got a little yeah. thing right there. All right. You know there are there are example in your Bible where there's a people group called the Rodanim or the Dodanim. And the question is, what are they? 
Well, the manuscripts we have, one of the R's or D's got changed to an R or a D because there's a little smudge. All right. Now, does your eternal destiny depend on whether it's the Dodenim or Rodenim? No, it doesn't. All right. But the point is, yeah, the whole point is that there are differences in manuscripts that we have that we can identify where the, the smudge on the parchment changed an R to a D. There's no theological change here or anything like that. In, in most of these cases, they were like common names or things like that. Um, and they can be easily identified. But uh, you can see how it's, it would be easy to, to mistake one. Or like here, you got the, the eight, this one here and this one here. I mean, if you got a little smudge on your paper, your H goes to a CH. All right. So you can see how that works a little bit. Well, the jot and the tittle up there somewhere? Yeah, the jot. The, the tittle is this little thing right here. And the jot is, I think, the yod. All right. Which is where iota comes from. Yeah. So that, uh, that's the Hebrew. It looks like chicken scratches, doesn't it? It's a whole different way of reading. Here's, a, uh, here's the Dead Sea Scroll. You probably can't see it very well in your copy. But here's uh, the Psalms from the Dead Sea Scrolls, book of Psalms. And I don't know which Psalm it is, because so, I don't read Hebrew. But you would start here and you would read across. And then you go down here and you'd read across, like that way. But that is uh, what the book of Psalms would look like from the Dead Sea Scrolls. Which, by the way, is virtually identical to the Psalms from the Masoretes that they had. Very little difference. Alright? But you can see, like on a paper like this, a dark paper, you know, if, if you just get a little smudge or a little ink blot, you know, a letter could... And, and you're the guy that's got to come along and read it the next time. You can mistake it. Think of trying to read a doctor's signature, you know? Yeah. Or maybe you're writing, you know. What did I write down? Is that an I or I don't know what that is. Um, Aramaic is another language that was used to um, write stuff down. Part of Daniel's written in Aramaic. Part of Daniel's written in Aramaic. Aramaic was a consonantal language, much like Hebrew. In fact, it's very close to Hebrew. Very, very close. A sister language. Um, and really, it was. If you want to think, this was the common language of the people when Christ spoke. He probably spoke in Aramaic. Christ did not speak in Greek. Um, if you think about, uh, what is it, The Passion of the Christ by Mel Gibson, where they spoke Aramaic. That's probably what he spoke, Aramaic. Um, it's very much like Hebrew. It was the common language of the people. You had the common language of the people, and then you had Hebrew was the religious language, and Greek was the um, language of commerce. And then, of course, you had Latin. Most people by there, back then... A lot of them were multilingual. And if you were a scholar or something like that, you were definitely multilingual. You could read multiple languages. And uh, what you find in the Bible is that Aramaic was in those passages of Scripture that dealt mainly with um, Gentile type of things. For example, Daniel 2, 4 through 7, 28 is written in Aramaic. And it had to do with the Gentile world powers. And that, of course, also has Nebuchadnezzar's um, confession of God in there. All right. Ezra, Ezra 4 and Ezra 7, I think these are the decrees um, for the Jews to go back. I think that's where these are at. And uh, that was written in Aramaic. So there's a few sections of the Old Testament that are Aramaic. All the rest of it was Hebrew, but Aramaic and Hebrew are very much alike, look very much alike. All right. Um, 
Don't know where that comes from. You got me on that one. I think it's a people group. Yeah. Probably from Arameans. Yeah. That's probably where it's from. But it's the common language of the day. Um, Greek was the language used in the New Testament. All right. Um, it was used for the entire New Testament. And unlike Hebrew, Greek is a very, very precise language. In fact, the average verb in Greek has about 500 different verb forms. Anybody take a Romance language like Latin, might not like it, well, like Latin or um, Spanish or French, and you have all those stupid endings on words depending on whether it's a, you know, first person plural or third person and then all that stuff. That used to drive me bananas. If you think that's bad, Greek is worse. All right? Because every verb and every noun has an ending depending on what, yeah, all of that stuff. It's very, it's very precise. English is bad that we have, like at least, uh, I forget what the number is, some huge uh, yeah. tenses, uh, 21, at least different tenses. Well, actually, Greek has some tenses that we don't have. In fact, Pastor mentioned one a few year, weeks ago, the aorist tense. We don't even have that one. In our, it's a verb tense. And one of the things when I, when I studied Greek on my own, I learned more about English than I ever learned about Greek. Just because I had to learn all the different, you know, voices and all that kind of stuff. And the pluperfect and the perfect and all. Oh, jeez. Um, but anyways, it's a very precise language. And why is that important? Well, it's perfect for theology, isn't it? In fact, a lot of our theology, in fact, in, in fact, some of the best um, understanding of theology comes from understanding the Greek language behind it. I'll give you an example. When the Bible says you've been justified, it uses a verb form called the aorist, which means it's something done in the past, never to be repeated. All right. Which means your justification is a done deal. It's not a process. They have words for process. And the reason that's important is because in the Catholic theology, justification is not an event, it is a process. You are being justified as you work the Mass, as you do your penance, as whatever, but it's not something that's been accomplished. Where the New Testament usage of the word, whenever you say justified, it's a done deal. It's a once-for-all, never-to-repeated thing that was completed. So, you've been justified. Now, it talks about sanctification, that's a continuing kind of concept. But justification, the declaration of your righteousness before God, it's done. Never to be repeated. And that's what makes it important. Um, Greek is different. That has upper and lowercase letters. All right. Um, it is like Hebrew written without spacing. But it does have vowels in it, which is nice. It has vowels. It has a 24-character alphabet. And like English, it's written from right, left to right, top to bottom. So it's a little bit easier to, to read a Greek manuscript than this a Hebrew where you're going backwards. This is what the Greek alphabet looks like. Alright. Alpha, beta, gamma, if you take any kind of math or anything like that, you know, your alpha, beta, gamma, delta, epsilon, zeta, eta. And uh, some of them have the, the pH sound here, the, the, the phi, the chai, the psi, the um, PS sound. Um, that's the, by the way, these are the uppercase letters. They also have lowercase. Here's the, here's the upper and lowercase you can see here, where you got your, your M and your N and your different ones. Alright? 
And one of the things about Greek, too, is that sometimes letters change form if they're on the end of the word or not. For like the S sound, the sigma here, um, it depends on whether it's at the end of the word or not. It takes a different form, but it's easy. You can, it's easy to figure these out. It doesn't take long to learn the alphabet. You know, usually if you're taking a Greek course, the first lesson is you learn the alphabet, you come back to the next lesson, you've got your alphabet done. So, um, Here's a textual example, just again, I get how this looks. All right. Um, think about our John 3.16, all right. If it was written without any spacing between the letters, could you read that? Why, why could you read that? You know the English language. You know that F-O-R-G-O-D is not a word. Okay, you know that's not a word. But for God is. And you know that G-O-D-S-O-L-O-V, God's love, is not a word. You know that. Okay? So, by knowing the language, and this is why, you know, when you talk about this, people say, well, how in the world do you ever know what the original Hebrew was? Well, if you know the language, you can pick this out. All right? You can, you can put the spacing in on your own. All right? Now, here's, an, here's a question. Are there sometimes some examples where you could be confused as to what it is? Yeah, they're rare, and we have some textual examples of that where you're not sure exactly where the word break should go. But again, that doesn't affect any of your theology. It's just uh, trying to understand what the original text is. But right there is what it would look like if you just strung it up. Yeah, no punctuation. They didn't have periods, question marks, exclamation points. It just went on. And it's all one case. Yeah, this here is all one case. And, and so... Mm-hmm. Well, some of them are. In the Greek text, we have manuscripts which are called unseal. We'll talk about those later, but unsealed texts are uppercase. And then you have cursives, which are written in a lowercase scripting kind of uh, form. All right, so you have different classes of manuscripts, but most of them were, they, they rarely mixed case in the manuscripts. Like, like we, you know, when we're reading a book or something like that, we have upper and lower case and we put an uppercase letter at the beginning of the sentence and think, they didn't do that kind of stuff. You know, it just ran on. And again, the reason for that is because writing materials were just so expensive in that they didn't waste space um, and punctuation. Well, they weren't uh, particularly that form on that yeah. Yeah. And not everybody read it. You know, the people who wrote, read the language, you got to understand, the people who read and wrote these languages were the ones that were really, really knowledgeable. They were the intellectuals. So they didn't need punctuation and spaces. They could just, they knew what it was. You know, and when they read it, they could read it to people. Like, when, you know, in Ezra, when Ezra preaches the word, what did he do? He stood up and read the text. So why did he read it? Well, most of them couldn't read. Most of the people couldn't read it, read it as they had it. It had to have somebody read it, and he was able to read it because he was a scribe. He wrote this stuff. He knew the letters. He knew the pronunciation. He had it all down. Here's what it would look like if it was lowercase. You know, probably. No, it's, uh, that's what it's here. It goes all the way through. Be gotten. All right, somebody's... Always got to be somebody, right? It's got to find the one letter. There's one letter wrong. Yeah, that was a misspelling. Yeah. 
that that's a that's a text that that what that is that's a that's an intentional textual gloss that I made that 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 a a a textual critic many years later was able to read and correct, but it didn't change the meaning of begotten. I just misspelled the thing. That's amazing how that just worked out there, isn't it? Well, can... that also be true of the old scrolls, that maybe they might have had a symbol in press. They did. And, and we have examples of that that we can easily pick out. And when you get rid of all of that kind of stuff, you're down to really a, an extremely pure text. Extremely. But one of the things you'll notice here is, for example, is they didn't, they didn't hyphenate their words. And when they were done, whether it was in the middle of the word or not, they just went down to the next line and took off. You know, so they didn't... They didn't have any things like, you know, we have to end the sentence with, or the line with a word, a full word, or we have to hyphenate it. They just ran it on. Okay? Here it is in Greek. No. This I was pretty sure I got right. Alright? But here's, here's what it looks like using Greek languages. What's Greek mean? It should be. Alright? That's John 3.16, okay, in Greek. And then we have, um, here's what it looks like in the lowercase letters for Greek. All right, just ran on. And that's what your manuscripts would look like. And I can actually read some of this. That's hutos. Gar is for, agape is, is love, theon is God. So you can see, um, you can sort of, I can sort of bumble through it. But if you read this stuff all the time and you're a Greek scholar, you could read this stuff without any trouble at all. You'd know exactly what it meant. Alright? And then, um, here it is in the Hebrew sense. If we were right, if I was writing it in Hebrew, you start from the right and go to the left, but notice what's missing. No vowels. So I have FR. And then I have GD. And I have S. And I have LVD. You know what else is really possible to think about? It's always Greek that's in the precise tense that you're mm-hmm. talking about, like the word justified. It's all explained in another language, in Hebrew and Aramaic, mm-hmm. in the Old Testament. And it's it all works together. Yeah. And why is that? How many authors of Scripture do we have? One slash forty, right? Well, it's inspired. Forty different authors, but there was one superintending author who bore them along, so that there's a a a consistency between the old and the new. And that's a, that's a yeah. And, and that's why when we talk about verbal plenary. When, when Isaiah got done, every letter that he wrote down, every Hebrew letter, was precisely the letter that God wanted there. And when Paul wrote Romans, every letter was precisely the letter that God wanted. The verb tenses were correct. All of that was just because it was the product of God. And so you'd expect it to be inerrant. But this is what it would look like in Hebrew if, if, we, were, if we were to write our language like the Hebrews wrote it, backwards and no vowels. All right? Yeah. Um, so let me see where we go here. I don't want to get too deep in that. Well, I'm going to zip through the next part here because I want to get down to... I just want to see where I want to make sure I get to here. Okay.
Got some fancy words. Okay, I'm going to zip through this. You can go read this on your own, okay? Um, you can go figure this out on your own. But all I'm doing here is I got a few slides showing the precision of the Greek language. All right? And a nouns, you have different forms of the noun. Whether the noun is used as a subject, whether it's a possessive, whether it's used um, in prepositional phrases, all of that stuff. Um, and all the, every noun, has, depending on how the ending is, can tell you exactly how it's being used. So it's very precise. All right, so I'm not going to go through that. I'm not going to go through this. Verbs, I'm not going to go through that because that's more in the textual stuff. Um, but basically, the whole upshot of those few slides I missed, and you can go back if you want to and look them over, is that Greek is a very precise, very accurate language that really um, nails down exactly what is being said so that there's no possible confusion as to what, is, what God was trying to say. But um, when we look at manuscripts, there's a lot of different topics we'll look at here. And um, what we're going to do here is just look at the overview of them. For the, let's think about conveyance of divine truth. I want to bring this out. When God wrote this, what, what was the purpose of God writing down his truth? He wanted us to know his truth. All right. God did not write it down because he wanted to write a bunch of letters down on a page or a bunch of words. He wanted us to understand truth. Okay. So our theology is built on our theology is built on the foundation of God's truth as revealed in the word of God. Do you understand that top one there? Theologically, where do we get our theology of God? How do we know who God is like? We get it from the truth of the Word of God, right? That's our source. Okay? The same thing about salvation, about Christ, about heaven, hell, about all of our theology. We should derive that from God's revealed truth that He has revealed in His Word. How has God revealed that truth in His Word? How has God revealed us to Him? Or Him to us? Well, He wrote down the various concepts and ideas that we have in the Word of God. You go to Isaiah chapter 40 through 48, you find out about God's omniscience. You find out about God's power. You find out about His omnipresence in Psalm 139. Okay? So when you put all of those things together like we've done with the doctrine of God or the doctrine of Christ or the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, these concepts or ideas come from the text of the Word of God, the text of the Bible. And what does that text consist of? Words. Paragraphs, sentences. All right? And what do those consist of? Letters. Okay? Now, one thing, and we'll show this later on in a different slide, is that there's a redundancy to the Word of God in this sense. If I want to teach you the deity of Christ, how can I do that from the Bible? And why? Well, I can do it from memory, but where do you find the deity of Christ in the Bible? How many passages deal with the deity of Christ? It's all through the Bible. There's a lot of them. All right. Mm-hmm. 
Yes. We find that in the scripture. Yeah, that's the continuity between all of the books and the whole Bible. Yeah, but this is the point that's being made here. Although letters are very important, right? Part of the textual critic's job, and we're going to talk about this later. Part of your job as a textual critic is, to the best of your ability, find out what the original text was. That's your job. Okay. If you've got two different manuscripts with the spelling differences, which one do I go with? That's your job as a textual critic. So letters are important. But, having said that, if I miss one of those letters, it does not alter my theology of the deity of Christ. And why is that? Because it's all over the Bible. Do you understand what we're trying to get at here? Yeah. Alright, so, so the, you know, the, the, the scribe mistranslated a letter over here, a word in this text. And it, and it, and it, it may mean that um, I don't see the deity of Christ there as clearly as I should, but I got the deity of Christ in 500 other passages. Alright, the point is this. What I'm trying to get at is this. The truth in our theology does not depend on any single letter being right or wrong. Do you understand what... I'm trying to get at there. Yeah. And there's redundancy. Alright. I mean, I, there may be a mistranslated word. I may miss a word altogether that should be there. Maybe it's not there. But that doesn't alter my truth of God because it's all over the scripture. God's omniscience. It's all over the place. I don't have to say, you know, if I, if I change this one letter in this verse, I get rid of the omniscience of God. It doesn't work that way. Because God has revealed himself throughout scripture in so many different ways and at so many different times and has repeated himself so many different ways that you can't miss it unless you actually go in and systematically try to do that, try to remove it. And that's what the Jehovah Witnesses have done. Yeah. God, God has revealed himself in such a clear and precise way in the Bible that it takes some effort to follow it up. 
Now, they work really hard at it, the History Channel and Discovery Channel. A lot of times they succeed. But if you want to get rid of the deity Christ, you're going to have to really do some massive surgery on the Bible. Or it, they succeed to the ignorant. Yeah, mm-hmm. to the ignorant. Because, again, here's the thing. God wants you to know him worse than you want to know him. And if there's some essential theology or essential idea that you need to know to get to heaven, God has repeated that, so, that idea so many times and in so many ways in the Bible that it can't be lost unless you just don't want to look for it. It's there. And speaking of missing words, I think the translators of the original King James um, came across that problem because in italics were filled in words that weren't from the original. Yeah, and, and usually they were filled in because the original, and whenever you go from one language to another, we're going to talk about this, you go from any language to any language. There are certain ideas and concepts that don't translate very well. You have to fill in using italicized words. It's not that those words weren't there, but the idea was there. But in order to translate them into English well, you need to add something. And that's what was done there. But we'll, we'll go through that. The whole point here of this slide here is just to say, when God revealed himself to us in manuscripts, in his written word, the letters were important, the words are important, but the theology does not depend on any single letter or any single word. Okay? So that even though there may be some confusion, and we're going to talk about a few textual passages where there is confusion on, well, what letter is it or what word is it? We're not impacting any theological concept. We're not getting rid of the deity of Christ. We're not getting rid of the blood atonement. We're not getting rid of God's omniscience. We're not doing anything to any of those doctrines because they're throughout Scripture. It may bring more clarity or something like that. And, and there are a few situations where we have those. But again... No theology is altered. Okay? Because how do you get to heaven? You get to heaven by having a relationship with the living God. Where do you get that? You get it from the Word of God, which tells you who He is like, what He is like. It tells you how to have a relationship with Him. And that is repeated in so many places in the Bible that, again, one letter or one word is not going to cause any theological change. Alright? So, you know, and that's one of the things that a lot of times people, they get really excited about, especially some people on the King James only um, crew, that, you know, if I don't get that one word right, you're damned forever. Where do you get that? You know, that doesn't make any sense. In fact, I was listening to a friend of mine, um, pastor of a church that he used to go to, believes that if you're not saved using the King James Bible, you're not saved at all. You can't be saved unless you're saved out of the King James Bible. All right, now that's wacko, all right? But there are people that believe that. Um, when we look at manuscripts, and we'll go through this a little bit, these are just some terms to, to know. I, I, personally, I'm, you know, some of you may find this a little boring. I find it fascinating, personally. Um, but, you know, the, the Bible that you pick up came from something. <laughs> it came somewhere. And it came from these manuscripts that we have. Um, just some words when you when you look at and by the way the History Channel Discovery Channel tosses these words out too so I know you're all smart enough to understand what we're talking about here but a cursive what's a cursive it's scripted it's a scripted language and what happens is that came out much later on so by looking at a text and this is one of the important things by looking at a manuscript and looking at the writing style the medium on which it is written in that, you can pretty much identify the time period that that manuscript comes from. 
All right, because cursives did not come into vogue until about the 9th century A.D. So if I have a cursive manuscript, that makes it somewhat late. And a cursive, again, is more like a scripted, like, script, like we write in script. All right? Um, a gloss. What's a gloss? G-L-O-S-S. That's just a mistake, an, an error. We saw one today where I misspelled begotten. That was a textual gloss. I misspelled the word. Do we have examples in the Bible of misspellings? Absolutely. We have some of those. Um, also, another, yeah. A gloss is a mistake, but this, I've just read the explanation here. There's two. A gloss is an error. But also, sometimes, here's what would happen. Um, I have a manuscript, I'm studying manuscript, I make a little marginal note. Okay? How many of you make marginal notes in your Bible? Uh, a lot of you make marginal notes. Now, pretend that we didn't have the printing press and your granddaughter or grandson got your Bible and had to make his own copy. What would he might, what might he do? He might write in the margins also, but what might he do with your... He might, actually, he might add your note into the verse. We have examples of that that we can find, we can pick out. Um, one good, probably, example of this is the um, John chapter 5, the pool at Bethesda, where it talks about an angel going down into the water and disturbing the water. Um, no manuscript, no Greek manuscript that we have has that phrase in it about the angel going down into the water. But probably what happened... Well, somebody had it and they said, you know, I remember Grandpa telling me about, you know, the, the, the legend was that there's an angel that went down into the water. They put a little note in their margin. And then the next guy that comes along and gets that manuscript adds it in to the text. We can pick those out. Those are simple, easy to pick out. There's not a lot of them, but the, it happens. All right, that's what a gloss is. Um, hypothesis, it's a brief introduction to books. Um, you got a lot of this in the um, Psalms, right? Psalm of David when he was running from Saul. You see those little headings on the Psalms? That's what that is. Um, a lectionary is a lesson. This is interesting. If you look at the what's a lectionary, and from a Catholic background, you have your little catechism and lectionaries that you go through, your little like Sunday school material. Well, that's what this was. In the early church, they had these lectionaries that they would write, that they would copy scripture in, and then they would use to teach people. And we have a lot, and by the way, there's a lot of quotes of the New Testament in these lectionaries. And that's one of the, if you want to think about it, it's an additional um, witness to the record of what the original was, because we have a lot of these Sunday school materials that were written, so to speak, and we have the text in there. Um, it's sort of like an early read through the Bible in a year kind of thing. You know, a devotional guide is what they were. Lexicon is different. Lexicon is a dictionary, more of a dictionary. Um, a minuscule is a manuscript written in all lowercase letters. Think of minuscule, tiny. That's what a minuscule is. All right. And it's, it's usually in a script. Okay. Here's a good one. This will be on the test of a pissograph. That's a good one. All this is a scroll on which you have writing on both sides, a papyrus scroll. So you'd have writing on one side, and then you flip it over and have writing on the back side. All these words, by the way, will be used later on when we talk about transmission of the text. Um, conflation. What do you think of conflate? Expands. 
Okay? Now, here's a question for you just generally, and we're running out of time, so we might have to pick some of this up next week, but don't worry about it. Generally, generally, all things considered, would a text tend to inflate or deflate over time? It would tend to inflate. Why? Got it. All right. And we see some of this in the manuscripts of the Bible that we have. Sometimes what you have, I'll tell you where this shows up a lot. A lot of places in the New Testament where it says Jesus Christ, we'll have another manuscript where it says the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? Well, which one's right? Well, both are right. Because we understand Jesus is Lord. But what might have somebody tried to do to make it more clear? Stick in the Lord Jesus Christ. Same thing, same concept. But texts tend to inflate, not deflate over time. Um, we're out of time. We'll pick up this discussion next week. Important definitions. Yeah, important definitions. And um, yeah, and we'll talk about this is an interesting thing next week. We'll talk about how the text was copied, and you'll get an idea of just how precise these people were in copying this text, and how meticulous they were, and it shows just how clear and how um, accurate we have our text of scripture. So let's stop here and um, close in a word of prayer. Father, thanks for this day, for teaching us, for being with us. Help us to. Think about what we've learned today and understand that you have gone to great lengths not only to give us your word in the first place but to preserve it through the centuries so that we have it in front of us today. And we thank you for that in Christ's name. Amen.